This is Dave Broadback coming to you from my podcast studio at home. My podcast studio. It's my movie's my daughter's bedroom. Anyway, um, the lecture you're about to hear is from a course, uh, Psychology 3717, uh, for the winter term 2017. The course is called Memory, which might give away the, the you know, the, the content is mostly memory. Um, so, uh, hope you enjoy it. Thanks. So we'll finish up the stuff on models, and then we'll do some stuff on memory development, get right back on track. Um, as I think I mentioned the other day, uh, the idea of depth of processing seems well, is pretty vague. Because, you know, how do you get better memory? Well, it's better processing, deeper processing. How do you know you have deeper processing? Because you have better memory. Um, and then I mentioned the idea of transfer appropriate processing. If we're, remember, if we're memorizing lists of words, I think thinking of the meanings is a sensible thing to use. So I think it's probably, I think that's a, a, a fair way to look at it. Um, and I believe I noted that, you know, Craig and Lockhart weren't thinking of it as a systems approach per se, really at all. They were thinking of this way of classifying different memory experiments and results. Um, and originally, in fact, that was the same thing that Tolvin was doing with the episodic semantic distinction. Um, so Tolvin's episodic and semantic memory distinction was originally just a way to classify different kinds of experiments. That's all it was. He comes out, I think, in 83 with another paper saying, no, these are actual physical, di physically different systems in the brain. So that they're actually not just ways of classifying data. Okay? That got some people, got their backs up a little bit because he, he had made a bit of a leap there. And by a bit of a leap, I mean a really big leap. Quite right, by the way, there are different systems. In fact, I think I would say he's almost certainly right. So his big distinction is episodic versus semantic memory. One of them is explicit, that's episodic. And one of them is implicit, that's semantic. So you have to think about and sort of bring to consciousness, as Endel would say, uh, what you had for breakfast this morning. But the idea of what, what is breakfast, that you don't have to think about that. You say it's the meal you eat at the beginning of the day. It's not explicit, it's implicit. Okay. And there is physiological evidence of a sort. Uh, of course, you can't really do these experiments ethically. I can't take a few of you into the lab and remove hippocampus and see what happens. The closest thing we have is HM uh, and KC, who's got more very damage than HM did. HM had surgery. KC had a bad motorcycle accident and literally has no access to his episodic memory at all. It's not that he can't form new ones, which is true. He also can't remember old ones from before his accident. Uh, his, he and his family have been very generous with their time uh, to try to help science, which is you know, good on them uh, and good on him. Because I, I think it's very impressive. And it's interesting because I think I told you this, that he doesn't have episodic memories 
So he can't remember, like, you can ask him how to do some mechanical task. He, he actually has an, uh, he was an engineer, and he um, used to tinker with Volkswagen engines. So you could say, you know, how do you do whatever? X, Y, or Z on the 1972 Beetle, and he'll say, like this, and he can tell you, and you say, how do you know that? And then it's something, of course, he would normally say, or if I asked you that, you were into that, you'd say, well, that's sort of my hobby. That's a thing I, I do. I like to play with engines. He goes, I don't know. Doesn't everyone know that? It's really sad. It's a sad, sad case. It also tells you you probably should wear a helmet when you're on a motorcycle. Now, Tolving maintains that only, an, only humans have episodic memory. No other animal has episodic memory except for humans, according to Tolving. And this, for him, is because it involves consciousness. Because it must be self-referential. There's a real logical flaw here. We can't... First of all, I can't prove your conscious, and you can't prove mine. You don't know what's going on in my brain right now, in my, in my mind, when I'm thinking about this. My little internal monologue. And I don't know what's going on in yours, and I can't prove you even have one, and you can't prove I have one. We just accept that it works that way. Right? Theory of mind. And we can accept that because, frankly, we're all people, so we can go, yeah, okay, I get it, yeah. I can't do that with a rat. Or a monkey. Or a pigeon. So in fact, if you are basing it on something that is called consciousness, it therefore must only be human, because we cannot determine, even through just guessing or experience, if non-humans have consciousness. But I would make the leap and say, I can't prove humans are conscious either. So it now becomes a useless distinction, the consciousness distinction. So how should we then distinguish episodic memory from other kinds of memory? We'll talk about autobiographical memory, uh, I think, next week. But how do we make that distinction? Hmm. Well, instead of saying it's about consciousness... Shake your computer up to get plenty of screw up space. It's not like an act just this one. They should do that. That should be a thing. You can delete files by it. Somebody's done that, I'm sure. Um, I bet there's an extra sketch. I gotta stop talking about this. Uh, so, thinking back to the trial. Uh, Instead, let's think about episodic memory. What are some characteristics of episodic memory you guys can think of? Because remember, it's self-referential. It's knowing what you had for breakfast. It's that kind of memory. Can you think of a characteristic of episodic memory that doesn't involve the word consciousness? Yeah. Okay, so it's, it's self-referential specific individuals. Very good. What's another one? Because I don't know what you had for breakfast. You know what I had for breakfast. Very good. What else? That's one thing. Yeah. Episodes that happen in your life. It's about your life. Again, self-referential. It's episodes. That's good. What is episodes like? Events. Individual events. 
good. Yeah. Okay, true enough. That's good. What's another one? These are good, by the way. So far, those are pretty good. Nobody said anything crazy yet. <laughs> you that like crazy one? I hope. Kidding, I'm kidding. Well, I'm now. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever mentioned time stamps before? Beautiful. Time. Because it's what I had for breakfast today, not what I had for breakfast yesterday. So it's, it's self-referential, but it, it, it's about individual episodes. It's just per, it's personal, and it's got a time. Yeah. And in fact, <coughs> semantic memory doesn't have that, does it? As soon as I take my sweater off, it'll start to get cold in here. Right? Semantic memory isn't self-referential. Knowing what the capital of Vietnam is isn't self-referential. I just know that. Okay. Do I know when I learned that? No, that's so far in semantic memory. Yeah, I don't know. It's not about me, an individual me. Okay. Does it have a timestamp? No. Is it personal? No. Okay. So those are all distinctions between semantic and episodic memory that don't need the word consciousness in them. Be able to design an experiment. It tests episodic memory in animals that aren't people. We need something that is about an individual. We need something and, and specific to that individual. We need something that the time matters. Nikki Clayton. Uh, is at she at Oxford now or Cambridge? One of them little schools in the UK. Uh, Nikki's a John Krebs PhD from Oxford. She's that tall. And she's the only person I've ever met that can ever drink me. Uh, she's drinking under the table. It's scary. So Nikki and uh, Ken Chang, who you may have heard of before, and you will hear of further on, maybe today. In fact. And uh, Al Camel, who's an important guy, a couple of guys in 4007, I've read an Al Camel paper, did this really neat experiment with Clark's Nutcrackers. Clark's Nutcrackers are food storing birds, okay? They store 30,000 seeds in the fall, recover about 25,000 six months later. In a 40 kilometer radius. Try doing that. You can't. Bring your Clark's not tractor to drive a car. It can't. So, you know, we got some things on. We can't fly. We can just invent machines that fly. So, humans are pretty cool, too. But this is a special thing they do. And they like to eat the stored food for long term, tends to be seeds, right? Because it's going to last over a winter. But they really like things like grubs and mealworms and stuff like that, because they're delicious. Protein, etc. But unlike seeds, those things go bad. They can rot. Oh, 
if they can rot, they have to know how long they've been there. If they know that they're going to rot, right? Because you don't want to make the effort of going and finding a delicious mealworm and then it's rotten and it makes you sick. Somewhere, and I, I can't find this picture, but a picture of a Clark's Nut Cracker puke. No, it's a blue jay. A blue jay puke. Also a few sort of bird. Anyway, what they did is they got these birds and they showed them different or sorry, they had them store food, seeds and mealworms. And then they had to recover these seeds or mealworms later, which is something they're good at. It's easy. They would prevent them from recovering some of the mealworms. You just cover up the place where they've stored them. They can see it, they just can't eat. So it's covered up with a little cover. They know there's a bug in there that they can't get at. You might think, well, after let's so after a couple of weeks, in fact, it's no good to eat them. So a couple of weeks later, you let them go back and try and recover that food. And you know what? They don't recover bugs will have started to go bad. They know when they put something there. Oh, that sounds like that's not Self-referential. I'm not going to argue parts not crackers are conscious. <laughs> they might be, I don't know. But I'm not going to argue you are either. So you do a task analysis. You find out what are the characteristics of this type of memory. Go from there. i got a friend, John Crystal, who's at uh, Indiana University. does all kinds of stuff on episodic memory in rats. i got a buddy, Rob Hampton, who does all kinds of things at Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, does all kinds of stuff on episodic-like memory. They always say episodic-like memory, which is okay by me. Um... In, in, in uh, recent months. And it's often tasks like this. Something they did and knowing when they did it. And it is different than other types of memory. It decays quite very It's pretty cool. And I'll be going to a conference in April, Better Cognition Society Conference, and there'll be all kinds of talks on episodic like memory and not humans. So I just think the problem Tulving has with this, and far be it for me to tell Emil Tulving anything is wrong. Um, he wrote me a letter of recommendation for this job. So I can't say anything bad about it. He probably doesn't know what a podcast is, so I can say anything I want. Um, <laughs> But he's wrong on this. I have actually, I've told him that. I think you're wrong. And really, David, why? I don't know, I'm nervous, you're famous. Um, <laughs> it's funny, because I've asked Endel about 
this, and he said, semantic memory? Sure, animals have semantic memory. Facts about the world, they know that stuff. He doesn't talk like that at all, but I can't do an Estonian accent. But episodic? No, no, no. He said to me one day, I think your birds might have little tiny episodic memories. I just think the consciousness thing is the problem. I think we just get that out of the equation. Because like I said, I don't even know how to measure it. I know what it is. We all know what consciousness is. Sure. Self-awareness. Knowing you're separate from the universe. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's fair. How do I measure that? <laughs> if someone can figure that out, they'll win a big prize. And they'll start with an end and with an Obel. <laughs> Questions on that? Um, why would there be multiple memory systems? Like, I mean, why would we have, if we're sort of taking it as a given that there are multiple memory systems, why would we even have such a Well, there's another paper that I have on the website that I'd like you to take a look at by Dave Sherry and Dan Schachter. It is old, 1987, but it is a pretty important paper. So Sherry and Schachter, 87, and it's about the evolution of multiple memory systems. When would they evolve? When an environmental problem comes up, and those of you that, I know some people biologists in the class, and I know that you guys know, a lot of you guys know enough biology to follow this, that, so that's a selective pressure, basically. That problem can't be solved with the current systems available. A new system will evolve. That doesn't mean that evolution makes choices, or, well, it kind of does, but it doesn't mean that the animal chooses to evolve a new uh, memory system. It doesn't work that way. Some mutation shows up and gets selected. Okay. So, for example, it might be the case that our memory for facts can't deal with autobiographical stuff. We need a system that can deal with things that have happened to us and when they happened. Humans are pretty special animals in that um, not only are we exceedingly social animals, but we also do something that's kind of weird. Sometimes we do what looks like altruism. Sometimes I do things for you because I'm nice. Sometimes you do things for me because you're nice. Just to be nice. You know, the only way that can actually evolve is if I keep track of who did nice things for me and I'm nice to them. And I keep track of who's a jerk to me and I'm a jerk back to them. That's the only way that can evolve. It's called reciprocal altruism, so it's not actually altruism. It's like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Right? You know how you lend your notes to somebody and they never give them back to you know those people? lend a book to somebody, you don't get it back. It's happened, right? See some nods around the room. You lend that person a book anymore? Notes? Never again. Never again. Or even something as simple as, oh, I'm short, oh, or, or the, the person that never buys around. 
you're at a bar, and you know the etiquette is that if you're out with friends and you're going to be out all night, it's just easier if you just buy rounds. Right? People still do that or like just an old man. That's still a thing, right? There's always the one guy that never gets his wallet out quick enough to buy him next round. It's always the one guy. He's like, oh, I'll get the next one. When that guy never gets the next one, the next time you go, you go, no, let's just all buy our own bricks. Or the one guy who, when it's his round, he buys a cheap drink. But when it's your pay, I'll have a double Grey Goose vodka, uh, martini, uh, with a whole gig of beer. (laughs) We keep track of that. One of the things that makes humans pretty special is we're able to keep track of those things. Okay? And I'm not saying we're consciously doing this, but we do keep track of those things. That doesn't work with semantic memory. That's such a fact about the world. That's, I remember that that guy screwed me around that time. Or, hopefully, I remember that that guy was really nice to me that time, and I will pay him back the 20 bucks he made. Right? There's a, there's a person I know who I will not name who bet me $20 on the U.S. election in 2008 and still hasn't paid up. I can tell you who it is, but it's the person who works here. all I'm going to say. Every time I walk by him, I think, do I say, where's my 20 bucks? Probably not. He goes, 20 bucks. I, I don't really need 20 bucks. But it's 20 bucks. I, I could buy a thing. I don't know what. Some apps. So, in us, maybe that's the thing. It's probably before us, before humans show up. I don't think there were humans that had episodic memory roaming the savant. We already had that. A nice example here might be birdsong. Birdsong's cool in that uh, songbirds remember to learn their own song and it's not just the fact that they learn the song, they also are predisposed to learn their own species song. That's a safe way to say it. It's like when humans learn language. We're predisposed to be able to learn language, and then the language around us is what we learn. Bird song is a little more complicated than that, in that, or a little more restrictive, sorry, in that you're predisposed to learn the, the song of your own species. Chickadees are not going to learn. I don't know what's in the songbird. Uh, juncos. They're more likely to learn, you know, the TV sound chickens, which you hear outside now because it's wonderful. That tells you spring is actually going to come. <laughs> yeah. You couldn't probably do that with regular classical conditioning. So what happened was. You get this song learning thing system that gets built, gets selected for. Okay? Take a look at that paper, it's really good. It's one of the sort of cornerstones. It really kind of shaped my thinking on a lot of this. Not just one. Okay. Questions about that stuff? Alright. Some conclusions about memory systems. Models are cool in that they can make predictions, they can be tested. If it makes a specific prediction, it can be tested. And that's how science is supposed to work. So I like models. 
They organize data. Also important, important insights. I just think they can't have too many assumptions. If they have too many assumptions, uh, then remember my model for predicting all your grades? Just tell me your grade, and I'll tell you. That's not a very good model. All right. Questions on that? Okay, so let's do development next. So we close this one. Not we, I, kindergarten. Okay. This is fun stuff. Um, you're going to think it's all about kids, and it's going to make it real fun. It's actually just like that's what you think of. Developmental psychology. What do you think of? First thing you think of is children. The number of people I know who go into psychology, the most common reason, first reason, is that I want to help people and be a clinical psychologist. And the second most common reason is I really want to work with children. Those are the two. No one ever comes in going, I really want to get into like synapses. That happens later, right? They get partway through second year and go, boy, that was cool. Maybe I can learn more about that. But when people start, it's like, I want to work with children. I just want to make the world a better place. You're all such nice people. Remember, altruism is bullshit, or isn't it? Um, <laughs> bursting bubbles left and right. Uh, your memory changes throughout your life. So, just like other psychological traits, memory basically, in a lot of respects, just another trait. I mean, it's not like a trait like in personality, but it's just another characteristic of a person or non-human. We'll talk about people today. Um, so it changes over lifespan. So we've got to talk about kids. We also got to talk about adults. And development doesn't always mean improvement. Right? It just means change over time, really, right? And if that's the case, eventually it goes bad. It's bound to happen. And it doesn't even have to be a clinical thing. I'm not talking Alzheimer's. I'm not talking dementia. I'm talking about just simple the fact that you're old. Right? You know, you talk to your grandparents if they're very healthy or anything like that. They have a, they're a little bit slower in the, in the memory stuff than you are. On the other hand, your grandfather's still stronger than you. Because he's got old man strength, right? It's a whole <laughs> different thing that... Right? It's a, now, there's dad strength and there's old man strength. My son, who's a giant man, he still, he still can't touch me doing um, like arm wrestling. Even with two hands, he grabs off. And my wife, we did this after dinner last night because he was, he was saying, telling me not to do something. And of course, you know what dads do, right? You, as soon as you say, don't do that, dad, you go, oh, oh, you mean this thing I'm now going to do until you cry? Because um, <laughs> it's fun to torment your children. That's why you have children. And so you can embarrass them in public and make them feel bad. <laughs> That's why, why I had kids. Um, learned that from my father. So I said, you want to see if you're strong? He, said, he says to me, I'm stronger than you. I said, bullshit. No, you're not. So here, one arm wrestle. So, you know, wasn't ready. Oh, we'll try again. Let's go left hand. Got him every time. And my wife said, why, why is that? Why are dads always stronger? I said, 
because we've been around longer, we lifted things for a longer period of time. That's all it is. The old man strength's weird, though, right? You got some guys like 75, like your grandfather, and you're helping him bring in a, I don't know, doing something. And he just picks up like a 50-pound bag or something and puts it over his shoulder. Looks at you, why can't you do that? <laughs> Don't really seek anything with old man's So, but you do eventually with your memory like everything else, and I mean, I've even noticed it myself. I'm not quite as quick as I was when I was 30, 35. But let's talk about babies. Even at birth, you know and remember things. Certain things are standard equipment on the human model. You've already learned your mom's voice. You've already learned your mom's voice. Assume you can hear and assume your mom spoke, so you know, there's the odd possibility that it doesn't happen. But usually, you've heard your mom's voice for all that time. You know it. And you probably know your dad's voice too if your dad was present. How does one test such a thing? It's not easy. Uh, and you've got to do this very, and, you know, this is done with like 12 hour old infants, by the way. It's very cool. Playback experiment. And you just take a look and see when, they, when their behavior changes if they hear their mother's voice versus hearing another woman's voice. And the behavior, you can see all kinds of behavioral changes. More calming, so less crying. Uh, sometimes even like, gaze, like not fixing their eyes because they can't really see very well, but they might turn their head or like just change their body position a little bit. So you can't really look at the head direction because they can't move their heads independently. Babies are losers. <laughs> Kids are stupid. If they were smart, they'd be adults already, right? Homer's there. A friend that does this kind of work. Well, I guess it's not really a friend anymore. I've been talking to 25 years. Acquaintance. Babies will actually stare longer at face-like stimuli. What's a face-like stimulus? Well, I can draw you one. Let's go with, uh, let's, use, uh, let's use blue. So you can show the babies a stim two stimuli. You can show them this. So two dots on top, one dot on the bottom. Or you can show them one dot on top, two dots on the bottom. They stare longer at the one on the left. Looks more like the face. So they actually know stuff already, right? They don't know much. They're babies, after all. They don't know enough not to shit their own pants. But okay, I thought that was kind of funny. I guess not. Um, thank you. Thank you for the courtesy laugh. You're very kind. You know, that's actually worse. Um, but they do look at face like stimuli longer. That's, that's something. You're built with that. We've never seen a face before. But you've learned your mother and father's voice. That's memory. Memory is just the persistence of learning. Yes? Um, for the babies who were tested, you said they've never seen a face before. Does that mean that they were separated from their mother? No, no, no. They, they've, they've, like, not that they've never seen a face before, but, I mean, they just joined the world. Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't like strip them from there. Oh god, it's not some horrible that experiment. It's as much fun as that would be. Well, fun scientifically. 
completely evil. And I'm not evil. I'm a pretty reasonable person. But three of you must now have children, and we're going to take them from you. Um, no, three's not a big enough hand. We need more power. Uh, Joe, these are Joe's, and just barely. Um, there's this thing called infantile amnesia. Someone's doing their paper on that. Person here who's doing their paper. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a great talk. Because babies, wait a second. What's the, okay, who here remembers stuff from when they were six years old? Put your hand up. Sure, good. Five years old, keep your hand up. Four years old. Three. That usually is when it goes away. Two. Anybody other than me? That's about it, right? And even up to three. You don't remember anything today. You remember stuff then. Babies have favorite toys. You can't, can't be your favorite toy if you don't remember playing with it. It's not like every time you show the kid a, a toy they like, they go, oh, I've never seen that before. <laughs> show me how it works. <laughs> so they learn things, they remember things, but you don't remember that. Right? And the things you do remember from when you're really little are really stupid. Like, they're useless pieces of information. They're not, like, stuff you might remember when you're seven or eight, you actually might remember days in school, things you've learned. Right? You might remember books you've read when you were seven or eight years old. They weren't long. You were in social needs back then. But, I mean, yeah, that's a good choice, too. Give the kid the, the Gulag Archipelago. <laughs> um, somebody got a social needs reference. That's good. Uh, why? I mean... It may be brain immaturity. This is one thing I've heard that we just don't have the gear. We're not hooked up yet properly to remember stuff very well. But we do. So episodic, maybe we don't. Maybe our episodic memory doesn't work very well yet. But you can talk to a three-year-old. They're not complicated conversations. But you can ask a three-year-old, what did you have for breakfast this morning? And he'll tell you. Right? You ever been with a three-year-old? They're fun for a while. <laughs> when they're your own, they're the greatest thing in the world. But I mean, they're somebody else's. They're still pretty awesome. I love them. Until they hit about six. Um, then I like them again when they hit about 18. The time in between, I don't like them. I could never teach elementary or high school. I mean, I like kids as people. It's groups of them I can't deal with. When they get in a pack, <laughs> like in a classroom, I don't know how anybody deals with that. I have so much respect for people who teach elementary and high school. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you get in front of a room and just don't sit. Well, you shut your goddamn mouth! Like, how do you not do that? <laughs> I would do that. I would not last long as a teacher. Whereas when you teach adults, you can say stuff like that, and people go, ah, funny, quirky, weird. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's really strange. So this stuff doesn't like stick. Why? Brain immaturity. Like, like I said, toddlers have episodic memory. You can talk to them and ask them what they had for breakfast. You can ask them what all kinds of things. What toy they want. They know that. They saw an ad. 
What's your favorite website? We can ask a three-year-old. Huh? So it's not brain immaturity. It's, I mean, it could be. It's very partially that, but is it the lack of linguistic development? We know that semantically we seem to store stuff linguistically, right? Propositional networks, you know. But and it's hard to imagine not thinking linguistically, right? If I ask you a question about anything, you could you know the little inner monologue kicks in. How do I do this? Well, I do this, this, and that. But so that may be part of it. Maybe part of it. But my son didn't speak till he was four and a half. He's got autism. He didn't speak till he was four and a half. He remembered stuff. He remembers snippets of things when he was three and four, like most people do, little tiny things. You know, stupid things like what color was your bedroom? Like there's questions you like you remember things like which is completely useless information, right? It really is. But big events actually can be remembered. Oftentimes it's something traumatic, like uh, going to the hospital. Things like that. I remember my brother going to the hospital. Uh, he was one. And he spent two weeks in the hospital because he was dehydrated from having the flu. And I remember that. Because I remember him coming home and I know the coat he wore. And I know the coat I wore. <laughs> my mom was visiting at Christmas. And I said, I remember when Dad came home from the hospital after he was sick. And she said, you can't remember that. You were three years old. I said, I was wearing a a tan-colored coat that had, like, wooden oblong buttons. And Dan came home and was wearing a little, like, ski jacket and a hood on it. It was brown here and orange here. And she said, okay, I guess you do remember it. <laughs> By the way, that's the time my brother threw a Tonka toy at a nurse. <laughs> Way to go, Dan. My brother didn't like stuffed animals. He had a, he had a Volkswagen Beetle that he liked, though. And he was probably a year and a half, so I was probably closer. Three and a half. But he, uh, the nurse came in and said, your mom's going to come and take you home today. You're fine. And she was, I was wrong. <laughs> so when mom went to leave, because she had to go, because dad couldn't come home. So the nurse comes back in and dad goes, chucked it at her head. <laughs> we, have a, we have a sort of a temper we brought next. <laughs> it comes completely from the far father's side. Um, I remember getting my glasses. I was 18 months old. Because I saw stuff really somewhat clearly for the first time. <laughs> Wait, there's things out there. It's, it's exceedingly vague. But I do remember, I think I told you guys, I remember the Churchill Plaza Library. Told you that story? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I remember the color of the wall, so I remember any of the content of the story. See, I remember something that's useless. I remember going to nursery school when I was three, this used to call it yeah, and I remember painting. You, you ever get an easel? You paint. And they always had to wear one of your dad's shirts as a spark. The teacher came by and she said, what are you painting, David? I said, it's a map. This is Toronto. This is Kingston. Here's Montreal. That's the 401. I was such a weird kid. <laughs> I was a really odd kid. So I have some memories of being very, very young. 
but they're, they're, they're because they're big events that the nursery school was weird I don't know why I remember that <laughs> but I remember my brother coming home I remember my brother being born uh, I remember cracking my skull open when I was about three months uh, three weeks old uh, three weeks three <laughs> years old or some things like that I go to the hospital with stitches all but those are all big events right what can babies do Besides poop, he Well, one of the things they can do is they habituate the things. You show them a toy. How does this work? It's habituation. So it's, do they respond less to a stimulus they're familiar with? That's a classic learning paradigm. In fact, it shows up in literally every animal that's ever been tested. Literally all of them. So you show a baby, you're talking six months old. Six months old. Show a mom a toy, then show him the same toy again, eventually he responds less and less to her sheet. Uh, but they respond to individual stimulus attributes, so you show him the same uh, truck or Volkswagen Beetle, um, and let's say you change the color. Then they respond to it again. So they're paying attention to individual attributes and stimulus, not the whole thing. That's cool. Even some conceptual things, you can do these sort of... Uh, I remember when I talked about artificial grammars, that kind of stuff, you can, and, and, and artificial concepts. You can teach, you can even do that with little babies. It works. They just pay less attention and then more attention when something breaks the rule of the concept. That's cool. <laughs> Take that, Piaget. Um, they can do instrumental conditioning. This is actually neat. Um, you take a kid and you put him in a, in a crib. It's really simple. And you, you, you tie um, to their foot or their hand, using it, um, a little piece of string that when they pull it, it makes, let's say, a mobile note. You know the baby mobiles? It's one over your head. Yeah, because you're going to have that weird Russian music. Um, <laughs> and then they learn to do that. And they show all the same normal things that we expect with regular human memory. Um, they get better at recognizing stimuli the older they get. Uh, there are interference effects, proactive and retroactive interference. Uh, there's the spacing effect, which is when you put things apart more, they're better, each individual item is better remembered. So actually more personal. And you can use cues. You can show the kid X. Like a retrieval cue, just like you do when you they were talking about sort of associative memory. So, really, their memory, even though it's nonverbal, is working with this, following the same rules as our memory shows as adults. That's really neat. Now, you can also teach kids how to do something through imitation, which is something that it's hard to get other animals to do. So you show kids how to build something. So you got Legos or mechano set. Mechano set's very cool. And then they come back the next day and you test their retention for them. Now we're talking, these are toddlers, these are like three, four year You're teaching kids, you know, like I said, how to build a Lego, whatever. Without the, with the, getting you by the Lego set, it's not the structure. It's not that. I mean, just like, here's how we're going to build 
that tower or some sort. They come back the next day to the lab and say, uh, how do you build the tower? You show, they, they, they show attention. Good. So they, they can learn, and you showed them, so they're learning through imitation. And they can go from really simple things to really complex things. You show them how to build a couple of simple things, and then you can say, so for example, let's say you show a two-and-a-half-year-old, three-year-old how to build with some blocks, how to build two, uh, how to build a tower. And then you say, okay, I want you to build a bridge. You know what a bridge is. Let's build a bridge. The kid builds two towers and puts a plank. And you haven't told them how to do it, but they've put it together. Quite neat. The regular effects here show up again. You get interference happens, spacing effects. Uh, there's a regular a sort of a forgetting curve. It's exactly what you'd expect. And there's savings, and they come back a couple months later. Animal cognition, people study humans, uh, nonverbal humans, so little tiny kids. Um, we have a lot in common because we're dealing with nonverbal animals that we know know things, but we have to design clever experiments so they can show us things. We can't just give them questionnaires or lists of words. So you're dealing with subjects who have no way really of directly telling you what they know. And some of you guys took brain behavior with me. You've heard of some of this stuff. The work that Ken Cheng did, or sorry, the work that people have done based on Ken Cheng's rat work, but they've done it with toddlers. And I'll talk about that in a second. All right. So here's Ken's experiment. Um, it's actually a pretty simple experiment. You've got... An arena, which is rectangular, this is for the rats. And you put sawdust on the floor, and you bury a cocoa puff in one of the locations. The rats learn eventually to go dig for the cocoa puff. Rats love cocoa puffs, they really do. Rats love chocolate. They really love chocolate. Rats love chocolate, rats love cereal. There's no better place than a child's breakfast cereal to find those two things. <laughs> So the walls were different colors, things like that. Even stimulated put in the corners. And the rats basically only paid attention to the geometry of the, of the, of the box. They make errors, as you can see here, for example, the, 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 I keep forgetting I can do this. That's the right answer there. 71% of the time, they're going there. But 21% of the time, they're going here. They don't go to the other two corners because geometrically they're different. Right? You see that? Because it's long, right, short, left. 90 degree angle. Do you see that? So what they're making are what are called reflection errors, or sorry, rotational errors, not reflection errors. 
So Ken concludes that the rats are responding to the geometry of the bugs. There's a lot of different experiments. It's a great paper. So they're paying attention to the geometry. They're not paying attention to the, the, the colors on the walls, like the, sh the shades, I guess, the black and white. These rats don't see color. Uh, he even put things like peppermint oil and stuff in. They didn't pay attention to that. They pay attention simply to the geometric location. So one of the neat things that was tried was Herlin Spelke in 1994 tried the Cheng task, but with toddlers and adults. So these were three, three-and-a-half-year-olds and university students. So the first thing you do is you, the subjects come into a, a white uh, room that's rectangular. They're in the white room. Anybody get that? Some of my cream? Uh, in the white room with black curtains by the station. Nobody? Okay. And they're told, well, the, the adults are told that the goal's over here. You have to, the, the kids are, are shown where the teddy bear is. The adults, like, remember over there. Then what you do is you disorient the subjects. How do you disorient the adults? You, you put a blindfold on them and you spin them right round, baby, right round, like a record baby. <laughs> and take the blindfold off and say, where was it? And they do exactly like rats. Jump. Yeah, you just distract a toddler, you talk to him for 15 seconds. <laughs> Other experimenter takes away, opens a little door, takes away the teddy bear. And says, so how's it going? Would you, would you, would you have, where'd you get those pants? Okay, you ready? Where's the teddy bear? Like, because you know, kids are easily distracted. Then they, then they put in a cube. They painted one wall blue. And when they, you paint one wall blue, adults pay attention to the one blue wall, which you would too, right? You'd go, oh, it's on the blue wall to the left. Kids have no clue. They pay attention to the geometry. So toddlers, in this case, are not unlike rats. So adults follow the cube, but kids don't. Little kids don't. And an old student of mine, Andrea Pike, uh, did something similar to this with spinning a stimulus found the same thing. We eventually were able to do this and get adults not to follow the cue. We'd spin the, the stimulus for 480 RPMs revolutions per minute on a screen. Very fast. And then they, adults don't pay attention to the cue at all. When you make the task hard. So this tells us something. It tells us that what they're remembering, these kids, and how they're remembering it, these spatial locations. It's very cool. I've always thought, as an aside, that uh, infantile amnesia functionally makes a great deal of sense. I don't want to remember most of that stuff. Do you want to remember episodes in your life of people who are literally ten times the size of you holding you? <laughs> right? A drunk uncle looking at you with cigarette breath and, and it smells like whiskey. Cheap whiskey, too. Talking to you. You want to remember pooping in your own pants. <laughs> no. So functionally, it's actually very good. I think it would be psychologically damaging to remember those things. I don't think that's why we don't remember them. I just think it's a, think of it this way. It's a plus. <laughs> like, would you want to remember being born? Oh, God. <laughs> that's horrible. Imagine that. I'm floating in every great 
Oh my god! I can't fit through there! You know, you don't want to remember that. That's horrible. It's cold! It was also nice and warm, now it's cold, and the rest of my life I'm going to be cold and not floating. If you can choose warm and floating versus cold and not floating, I think most of us choose warm and floating. I'm just saying. So it's, there's some, it's kind of good that we don't remember those things. I just can't even fathom how that would be like to remember, so I don't want to even think about it. So let's pretend about it, and let's talk about adults where everything goes downhill. By the time you hit your 70s, your brain's actually shrinking. Oh, God. It's only 19 years from now. I'm screwed. Shrinks too, right? You ever notice people get shorter? So you're getting smaller. If people could live forever, they'd eventually get really small. That's my theory. <laughs> Little tiny old people walking around, yelling at you. You young people today. <laughs> That's the strangest thing I've ever said. Uh, there's actually probably a general cognitive slowing. which accounts for some semantic memory problems. Um, semantic memory doesn't have huge issues, typically. It really doesn't. There is some general slowing. If you get 80-year-olds uh, to do, it's on average, uh, a crossword puzzle, a word puzzle, something like that. Because that's a totally semantically driven task, right? We're, we're, crossword puzzles are beautiful semantic memory tests, actually. Or you can get into sentence verification or whatever. That's fine, but let's just get into a crossword puzzle. Compared to somebody who's in their 30s, they're just a little slow. They're a little slow. On average. Fine. Okay. I say probably because. It may just be that it's a question of things, more things interfering in your life. The bigger decline, more noticeable decline is episodic. You become more, older people often say to me they're, they're becoming forget. I don't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. And like I said, this is not Alzheimer's, this is not dementia, this is just regular oldness. Right? I mean, it can be indicative of something. Uh, the week before my father had a seizure from a brain tumor he didn't know he had, he called me and said, is it weird that this morning I couldn't name the drummer of the Beatles? I said, you're just old. It's Ringo's story. He goes, I know it's Ringo, but I, I just couldn't remember his name. Is that weird? I said, no, I don't think it's weird. I think it's just, you're 64 years old. And then he died in like six months. But that was probably indicative of something else. Now, if you can't name a Beatle, don't feel like you're going to die. Well, you're all going to die eventually. But I mean, it doesn't mean something's going to happen next week. But at the time, I said to him, you know, this is old. You're old. But episodically, too, you get forgetful. You get things like, I don't know where to put my car keys. Right? It's like watching a TV show with your grandparents. You ever do that? Who's he with? <laughs> 
Well, what's that guy doing there? Now, is she with them? She's, you just watch the show? You don't know. Look up Wikipedia on your phone and just see all oh, your old. You don't have your phone just has a dial. I'm all over the place. This actually could be due to encoding. Simon did some really neat work on this where older people have more trouble encoding uh, properly. And it's mostly, it's, it's quite possibly because of interference. It's, it's harder to allocate attention. It's a selective attention kind of thing. So you guys, especially because you're in school, um, know how to allocate your attention properly to remember things. You're good at that. Right? You're good at like, thinking, well, how do I remember X, Y, or Z? How am I going to learn this? You get out of practice doing it. You get out of practice. Is it the case that playing video games like Brain Games and Luminosity can do it? No! Okay. But move, get that out of the way. That's the bullshit. Please. They're fun. If your grandparents are playing it for fun, don't say, don't do that, you idiot old man. Be, that would be mean. <laughs> don't say it like that. But if grandpa says, I'm doing this to keep my mind sharp, say, you know what? Do a crossword puzzle. Play the game for fun if you like playing the game. But you know, if you want to play something for fun, there's more fun games. <laughs> Battlefield 1's pretty good. You were in World War I, weren't you, Grandpa? <laughs> no, there's no way. <laughs> that's impossible. They all World War I, that's a plenty of that. Most of World War II, that's a plenty But those games don't do it. Do something like I said, read a book. That's the thing. Read books. Um, it's about encoding, learning, remembering how to do stuff. Play, do crossword puzzles. But play those stupid games to play. Yes, Is the encoding part possibly why it's harder to teach older people how to do these things? I think it is, yeah. I mean, uh, brand new things, especially because they've learned, it's hard for them, it's harder for them to, like I said, allocate attention. Um, you'll see a lot more trouble teaching an older person how to use a brand new technology. And that can be the simplest possible technology in the world, right? Have you ever yeah. sat behind an older person trying to use a, uh, an ATM for the first time? Mm -hmm. Or uh, pay with, a, with, with their interact card? Now that it's the tap, it's okay, right? Everybody's got the tap, you're fine. But I remember when, I remember when bank cards first came out because again, old, me old. And I remember standing behind a woman about 20 years ago, I just wanted to get some money so I could go buy some liquor and cigarettes. And I used to really take a quote and myself. But anyway, so I'm standing behind this woman, and she's really nice, and she's really trying hard, and she's this really sweet old woman in Toronto, and this was about 30 years ago, and she's putting her card in the thing, and she says, excuse me, young man. I'm like, yeah, sure. What's up? How does this work? I said, well, uh, you got to put your card in. I said, no, put, your, put your number in. I don't know my number. Do you know my number? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, did they teach you in the bank? Yes, but I can't remember. It's about, it's five, three. Yes. No, 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 no. Don't tell me the number. Don't tell. And don't write down the number. Just memorize it. You know, she was having real trouble because she was trying to remember the order to do things in. And it, at that point, she then forgot the number that was one of the most important things for her to encode. Or it's like when you teach your parents 
grasped you guys right, not such your parents probably, but your grandparents about using a tablet or a computer or a phone. My mom and emails is the greatest thing in the world to watch. Well, it's gone. I can't find that email now. What did you do with it? Give me your phone. It's right here. How did you do that? I said, I opened the email app, Mom. Because I don't know what you do to things, but it's right there. Your plane ticket is your plane ticket. It's right here. Well, it was gone. Yeah, Mom, I magically made it appear. I'm pretty smart. I can't do stuff like that. Right? And you know what? We all laugh. In, for me, 20, 25 years, for you guys, 50, 60 years, whatever the hell it is, when they're teaching all of us how to use holograms and clone ourselves and we can't do it, <laughs> then they'll all laugh at us. So we'll call it even. Um, yeah, I think it's, it really is an encoded thing that you're out of practice. And especially once you get retired and you're not working anymore, you're just out of practice. It's not just that. I don't think it's just that, but I think a lot of it is encoded. And the idea that there's this idea called the inhibition deficit hypothesis, that you're much more susceptible to interference. And there's data like on this like crazy. It's easier to interfere with old people encoding things. Much easier. Things that would not interfere with you guys learning things or with me learning things, you take something to say, your grandparents, it's much harder for them. On average. It takes them longer to read things. They're more easily distracted with a distractor task. So you do typical memory experiments, but you just throw in a distractor task. It has more of an effect on an older person, on a younger person, other things being equal. What happens a lot of times, it looks like, is there's sustained activation of irrelevant material. So something will, they'll read a list of words in a memory experiment, and when I say the word treaty was one of the words, you might imagine a treaty that we talked about. So you might be a representation of a treaty. You might, for a fleeting moment, think about a tree, a specific tree that you saw, or a tree of, you know, in your yard or something, but you stop doing it because you know this is a test. So you stop thinking about it. Older people can't help it. What you can do, in fact, is control this and say to an older person and younger people, I'm going to give you a list of words. I'm going to actually only ask you every second word to remember. I'm not going to ask you the first one. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the first one I say is not going to be on the test. Second will be. So you go clock, tree. They can't help but remember clock. You know how you test this? You have them free recall. They also remember those first words. They remember irrelevant material. They can't help it. This doesn't mean they can't learn things. They can't learn new things. They have to do it. You have to do it uh, to keep these things in mind. Is all. So when you're telling your grandfather, grandmother, how to how to use how to, how to use uh, I don't know TV. TV. There you go. Because they get complicated. Now they used to be. Even when I was young, you turn it on and you turn a knob. It's way easier. Okay, push HDMI 1. <laughs> so you got to tell them this. When they say, what's HDMI mean? Well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you don't say it's high definition. Uh, some of the interface, right? Uh, you don't tell them that because that could potentially interfere. 
Just say, push this button here, HDMI 1, and then you can change channels. I have a, a, a remote, a smart remote that has a little thing that says watch TV and I push the button. I'm the only one who knows how to use it though. It's weird. I bought it so it would be simple <laughs> because it's cool. Um, and no one else uses it. So you probably have a combination of overall cognitive slowing and a problem with inhibition. They just can't help. And you know, it's not like old people are these helpless things that you can't, oh, please be nice to the old people. They're all stupid. No. They can learn stuff and all, but you have to keep in mind that there's more likely to be this general cognitive slowing and then probably inhibition. The problem here, and this is not going to get on the soapbox here, is teaching them how to use a TV without being a jerk. <laughs> you don't want to sort of young explain it to them. There's, like I said, there's no need to explain what HDMI means. There's no need to, all that other stuff, it doesn't matter. Give them the facts, show them how it works. But you don't say, okay, now sit down. I hate watching people talk to old people like they're children. It really bothers me. It really irks me at levels that you can't even and I'm like, I thought like that since I was like 10, too. And it's not because I'm getting old. Probably partially that. I can't remember. I'm a little bit old. Thank you. Questions over? You guys are in your primary memories. You'll be fine. Wait until you hit about mid-50s. Some conclusions about development. Yeah, perfect. We'll get right back where we're supposed to be. Thank you. Um, the development that happens with kids is amazing, and I really didn't talk much about this, but think about this for a second. You come out into this world, and all you know is that what your mom's voice sounds like, probably what your dad's voice sounds like, and that some things are a little more interesting than other things. Hey. Two years you can talk. You can't even walk. Humans are losers, right? You think of dogs, they get bored, like, oh, I'm gonna go for a run. We can't even do that till we're a year old. Year old dogs are having more dogs. Rats are adults at 28 days. Just think one thing. But you can remember things to the point where by the time you're eight or nine, you can do pretty complicated stuff. It's amazing the development that happens in humans. Of memory and cognitive development, it's just it's it's one of those things that when you sit back and think about it, because you don't really realize it. And you don't even think about it yourself. Compare you today to you ten years ago. You ten years ago, for most of you, was a bratty little 20, 11 year old kid. 10-year-old kid, right? Annoying, but you knew everything. Um, isn't that amazing? That's pretty cool, right? So I just, it's noticed, once you have kids, it's full away. How are you smarter than I am? When did that happen? I had that realization the last oh, five or six years. 
It's functionally sensible. We don't have many episodic memories from preverbal times, as I mentioned. Uh, so we aren't learning. Remembering those events wouldn't be helpful in our lives anyway. And they may be very disturbing, as I mentioned. There's decline. But the impact of that decline can be lessened with coping skills. So, and those coping skills can be how you teach older people how to do things. Like, that is a real thing. You know, like, when you have teach your grandparents how to use computers, things like that, which, you know, many of them over the years there. Even how to use, like, certain websites. There's how to use Tinder, Grandma. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> or maybe, I don't know. But here's, here's how you use Facebook, right? You teach them how to use it. Yeah, just swipe right. Now, um, I, I shouldn't know things like that, but I'm hip at the scene. I'm quite married. But hip with the scene. Um, you, can, you can teach older people stuff, but that's why they have classes to teach old people computers, things like that, because it's not like they can't learn things and remember things, but it's different. Right? Yes, sir. So, like, when your grandparents can't remember your name or call you different names, is that episodic memory loss? That's, that, that's semantic. That's semantic? Yeah, because knowing your name is a fact of the world. But what if they do it, like, every time? Every time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How many, how many grandchildren are there? There's a lot. Yeah, you told me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yes. yeah. Don't you have 50 uncles and aunts or something? That's on the one side. Yeah, see? Okay, that's just called interference. Yeah, okay. That probably happened... I bet that happens with Ruggles and Anson, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's not surprising. I think if you have, like, my, like, in my family, there's three of us. Yeah, my brother, my sister, and I. And then there's me, rather. And then there's uh, cousins out in BC. That's four or five. So, like, my dad's parents had five grandchildren. So that was never an issue with them. Right? And it was maybe never an issue with my grandmother, who got really old. Right? She often would. I remember she she messed up the great grandchildren. She thought Isabel was Madeline and Madeline was Isabel, things like that, which are one's the kid and one's my wife. Uh, so that's a strange thing. But she was ninety three. Okay. My grandfather actually says my name and skips over it. He says what? He says my name. Yes. And then he keeps going. So like he'll he'll forget my name, yes. but he'll say it. Be like Taylor, Hunter, Brian, Matthew, Taylor. Yeah, my grandma does that too. Yeah, she, he repeats my. You actually forget. That's funny. <laughs> but like they go through the list. Yeah. yeah. But that's a sensible strategy. You got a lot of Taylor. You have a lot of brothers and sisters. Or like like what? Like there's five siblings, and then there's uh, around ten. Okay. Ten that's still a pretty good list, right? It's nothing like Stephanie here, but it's a pretty good list. I mean. There are times, depending on how flustered you are, you can make. I call when I'm in, and it's all a lot of these things about retrieval keys too. For example, when I am in London visiting my mom, um, I suddenly constantly call my daughter Stephanie. That's not Stephanie. Stephanie, Madeline, that all the time, and that's happened not just because now when I'm like 51. It used to happen when I was 40. Is that interference? It probably is, and it's probably retrieval cues because my sister lives in the house that I grew up in. Right? So if I'm over there, first of all, there's a whole bunch of interference that happens there. But I walk upstairs 
go to the bathroom, sometimes I mistakenly just walk into my, my, my nephew's room because it's actually my bedroom and should be the shrine. Um, <laughs> you know, just to migrate. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things like that. And frankly, when you get flustered, that's interference again. Uh, and we've all had this one where you, if anybody who's got brothers and sisters, and they just call you the list of names. I've been called Danny, David, Stephanie many times. Yeah. Yes. I've never heard of that. I don't know what that would mean. I think it means uh, I don't know. Probably alien. I don't know. That's neat. That's kind of neat. But yeah, I go with aliens. Anything else? Good stuff in there. Nice, thanks. Thanks, everybody.
on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, These are released under a uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, You can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, You feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something but if you didn't i unless you're one of my students i really don't care um the music by the way for each uh song for each uh uh episode <laughs> lecture uh is uh available they're all podcast uh, like pod safe music so if you want to uh, find out about the bands there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback uh if those links don't work just contact me and i'll find uh, i'll find out um Often I put links, uh, actually, in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time.